I want to pick up in a whole new book, in the book of Revelation. This book of Revelation, it, it is my favorite book. It really is in the Bible. And, uh, you know, it, it's a hard call for me because i got a lot of books that I really, really like. But the book of Revelation has got to be, in my opinion, uh, the greatest book that's ever been written. As a matter of fact, I'll just be honest with you. You know, I've often thought to myself, if I had the wherewithal, if I had the resources and the ability, the talent and the connections to make a major motion picture, I wouldn't hesitate to make a, a movie on Revelation. But I wouldn't do what this Hollywood baloney does, and they completely distort everything. You know what I'm saying? And you wouldn't have to embellish anything because, you know, there's an old saying, the truth is stranger than fiction. Well, you go through this book of Revelation, I mean, it would be a fantastic movie. If you just stuck to the script, right, with all the ability of Hollywood with the special effects and whatnot. I mean, obviously, I have no talent in that area. I've never done it. Well, actually, I have made a couple movies before. They were just kind of a joke. I wrote a script that made a couple Bible study movies. But I just feel like if I could make a movie, it would be on Revelation because it is such a powerful, powerful book. And I think that what's interesting about this book, too, is so many people, they just ignore this book. They just say, well, this book is an unintelligible book. If this book doesn't make any sense, if this book all had its fulfillment way back there in the first century, I mean, I just heard the argument. I've heard it all. And to me, people who take that approach, they're just pseudo-intellectuals who have no idea what they're talking about. They haven't investigated this book. And I'll be honest with you, too. Going through this book, I always have a lot of apprehensions in teaching this book because I really believe strongly that the devil hates this book more than any book. As a matter of fact, if there was two books that I think the devil hates the most in Scripture, I think it would be Genesis and Revelations because uh, these two books have caused so much argument and debate and consternation and infighting and they've spawned more cults and more heresies and false teachings. I mean, just throw it out there. Uh, I really believe that the devil hates this book without a doubt because this book puts the nail in his coffin in terms of his final defeat and his ignominious place in eternity in terms of the lake of fire. I mean, he's going to be... it's prisoner. He's not going to be ruling and reigning. So like I said, going through this book, I always have kind of apprehension because I get attacked every which way, but uh, it was Sunday. I mean, it. some of the weirdest stuff happens to me, but I just feel like, hey man, I'm not going to ignore this book because I've shared this before going through this book. This is the only book in scripture that promises a blessing for anybody who reads it, anybody who hears it read, and of course, anybody who adheres to what's being said, right? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm open to any blessings I could possibly receive. You know what I'm saying? So I would just encourage everyone, if you can, to try to uh, come through this book of Revelation as we go through this book because there's a special blessing in store for anybody who even hears it. All right? But, of course, we've got to heed to what's being said here. And let's just go ahead and read it. We're just going to do one chapter, but here's the thing. It's only 20 verses. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read what's being said here. Read the first 20 verses of this chapter and then go back and break it down. It says this in the beginning of verse... Oh, by the way, the book Revelation, it basically means apocalypse. Apocalypse is basically means the same thing. Both of them mean revelation. In other words, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of the future of what's coming. And keep in mind, when we went through the book of Daniel, we just finished that up. We read the last chapter in the book of Daniel. It said that the book of Daniel was to be a sealed book and it was to be concealed until the end of time when many would travel to and fro and knowledge would be increased. What's interesting to me is you go back to the last chapter of this book of Revelation. It says, don't seal up this book. Well, that's interesting to me because this has never been a sealed book, even though people have looked at it upon it as being an unintelligible book. But I really believe that, you know what? 
if you take the time to read this to study it, I think it really, really says a lot. It, it should say a lot to even people throughout the centuries, even though they couldn't comprehend it the way that we do today. Because this is one thing when it comes to dealing with Jesus Christ's return. The prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself have predicted the return of Christ in such a way that I think God wanted every single generation to be waiting in a state of expectancy of his return. All right? But then the fool, the ignoramus, the shallow thinker is just going to say, well, people have always been expecting Jesus Christ to return. Well, that's true because that's the way God has written his word. He wants people to be in a state of expectation. But he did pinpoint a time in history, a generation in history, a place in history when all this would have its climax. All right? And I believe we're living in that generation because it all has to deal with Israel in terms of her becoming a nation again. And Jesus said that when that happens, that generation is not going to pass away until all this stuff be fulfilled. All right? And let's just go ahead and read it. Verse 1 in chapter 1 of Revelation. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and his Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pagramma, to Tyathira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for you, the mysteries of the seven stars which are in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, let's just go back and break this down. All right? Because this is really, really informative and very, very powerful. All right, just keep this in mind. 
John is an old, old man now. He's in his 90s. He's got to be, is because this is the last part of the first century. Then John, he has lived his life from probably as a teenager for Jesus Christ all of these years. And now he's exiled way off here in this island of Patmos. I, I know, it's, it's just a tiny island. It's only about 25 miles off the western coast of Asia Minor. Okay, in the Adrian Sea right here, which is above the Mediterranean Sea. Here's where he's exiled, right off in that tiny island. All right. Now, this, this is a guy who's just lived his life for Jesus Christ, and now he's sent out there to die because they just sent these people out there to work themselves to death, to die of starvation or exposure. All right, they had no use for these people, and that's where they sent. And keep something in mind, he's an old man, and I'm sure that he probably felt to himself, man, you know, is this my end? This is, this is the end I'm coming to after serving Jesus Christ all of these years? It just says a lot to all of us, it really does. Because, first of all, John probably figured, well, I'm washed up, I'm finished, I'm through, you know, I've given my life to Christ, and now I'm just sent here to just be warehoused and die. But, interesting thing, this is where he does his greatest work, all right? We are told in Psalms that blessed is the man who puts his faith and his trust in God, because he will bear fruit even in his old age. He will be full of sap and very green. I mean, I'm in and out of old folks' homes, nursing homes, uh, retirement homes all the time. All right, I go, I go at least once a week to these places, and I, I tell you what, just walking down the halls and glancing in each room, you see a lot of old people that are just being warehoused, waiting to die, and you see them all kinds of infirmity. And I find it sad, but I, I can't help but think of the curse that we're under as far as death is concerned. But I still believe that even if a person is infirmed and he's in his old age, he can still bear fruit. I really do believe that. If nothing else, a person can pray. All right? But you see, you have to spend your life living for God. That's why it says in, uh, in Ecclesiastes to remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and you no longer enjoy living. Because if a person has given their life to God when they're young and they live for God their whole life through, they're going to produce fruit in even in old age. And I, I, could, I look at John, he's produced his greatest work probably in his 90s. That says a lot to me, yeah. Well, we don't know if he was where he died, and we don't know how he died. I mean, tradition says at one time he was even boiled in oil because of his faith in Jesus Christ. But it's assumed that he just died of old age, or probably more than likely he died being worked to death or through exposure. So in a sense, he probably did die a martyr's death, but we don't know that for sure. The 11 other apostles, died, they died a martyr's death. We know that for certain. But John... He just kind of went off in obscurity, but I think that he probably died out there on the island of Patmos after he wrote this and sent it off to the churches. But go back to that verse 1 in chapter 1 of Revelation. It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. We're going to see Jesus Christ now in his risen state. We're going to see him in his resurrected state. We're going to see him in, in his glory. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the apostles up there with Peter, James, and John were up there with Jesus Christ. And then we got a glimpse. We just got a glimpse of his glory, right? But all through his life, he concealed that glory. Well, now this is going to be an unveiling of Jesus Christ in terms of who he really is, all right? Because it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. In other words, God his Father gave this to Jesus Christ to what? To show it to his bondservants. Now, here's what's interesting, because it says, to show his bondservants a thing which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. Now, twice it mentions bondservant in that verse 1. Now, what is a bondservant? Because I think that's really, really significant. What is a bondservant? God had specific instructions, both in the Exodus and the Deuteronomy, when it came to bond service. For example, in Exodus chapter 21, God said this. 
He said, Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh year he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes in alone, he shall go out alone. If he is a husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. And then it goes on to say this, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost of his master's house. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awe, and he shall serve him permanently. Now that says a lot to me. All right, because Paul refers to himself as a bondservant. John here is referred to as a bondservant. Now, you've got to get the picture here. A bondservant was one where a Hebrew citizen became so poor that they had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off the debt. Well, they could only serve six years. Excuse me, they could only serve seven years. At the end of seven years, they had to be let free. But after the end of seven years, if that slave thought, you know what, I've got a really good deal here. I really love my master. He's really good to me. I, I really am flourishing here and serving him. I delight in serving him. Well, I'm not going to go out. I'm going to serve him the rest of my life. Then God gave an ordinance there. He says, you, okay, the master of that house, he takes that guy who wants to sell himself to his master, and he puts his ear up against the doorpost of his house, and then he punches a hole in his ear, okay, to brand him for life as a bond servant. Now that's pretty significant because, first of all, what is a servant? You do the will of somebody. Good. Else. A servant is someone who does the will of another, right? Wouldn't you like a servant? I'd love, I'd love to have a few of myself, right? I mean, that's what a servant is, right? Okay, as servants of Christ, we do his will, not our own, right? But now, a bond servant is one who willingly sells himself into permanent slavery for their master, out of love for their master, right? But interesting thing, why the ear, why the doorpost of the, of the master's house? So the ear. Good. In other words, they take his ear, they punch a hole through his ear <clears throat> with an awl, whether basically a punch or whatever, and into the door jam of the house, showing, you know what, this is the master's household. And so his ear is always going to be in tune to what his master says for him to do in this household. And he's going to carry it out, all right, for the rest of his life. That says a lot because that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be bond servants, supposed to be sold out to Jesus Christ. And how are we sold out? You know, God just doesn't put people in a headlock and say, you will serve me. No, he says, hey, man, you're free to go. Uh, but say, man, I'm going to serve you the rest of my life. He says, okay, then you're going to be branded this way as a bond servant. And you do it out of love, you know. And that says a lot because that's what we are supposed to be, right? What it says here is bond servants are things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John. All right? So this, just get the picture here. It comes from God the Father to Jesus Christ to the angel to the John. All right? Now look at that verse 2. Who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Now, here's the thing. It says here that this is what John sees. And what he sees and what he hears, he writes in a book. Twice in this one chapter here, he is given the commission to write this down. Now, this is very, very important because this is not hearsay, all right? This is not hearsay. He didn't say, well, my cousin Vinny has a girlfriend whose brother said that his uh, pastor's daughter saw an angel who spoke to her about God. I mean, that wouldn't hold up in a court of law at all, right? All right. Now, John sees this. He directly sees this. He hears this. And then he writes it down. So this would hold up in a court of law. All right. This is not hearsay. That's what it means here. Who testified the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, look at verse 3, because this is what I was referring to earlier. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy 
and heed to things which are written in it for the time is near. Like I said, this is the only book in scripture that promises a special blessing. Even if a person just hears this, just hears it, all right, just sits there and listens to this, all right, intentively listening to it, there's a blessing in store for it. And like I said, I, I could use as many blessings as I could possibly get in my life. I mean, that's the way I feel about it. So, you know, even though I have an apprehension of going through this book because of the powers of darkness and the attacks that I, I get under because of teaching this book, you know, I figure, heck, heck the, the blessings are going to outweigh anything that happens to me if I just really, you know, take the time to read it, to study it, all right, to investigate it, and then, you know, to teach it the best that I can, even if you're just listening to it. There's a blessing in store. And an interesting thing, there are seven of these basically beatitudes in this book. There's seven times that God said, blessed is a certain person when he goes through this book. Now, how many beatitudes were there on a, a Sermon on the Mount? Eight. There was eight, all right? And we, we pretty much know what those eight were when Jesus Christ was giving the Sermon on the Mount. But here, the first beatitude in this book, it has to deal with just listening to it, just hearing it. And like I said, if we start going through this thing, look at that verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay, now this is who he's addressing it to. Now understand this clearly. He's addressing it to who? Churches. churches. In other words, this book is a book that is addressed to Christians, right? This is not a book that's addressed to pagans or infidels or non-believers or atheists or agnostics, all right, or people who in false religions or cults. This book is addressed to people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, right? All right, this is a closed book to anybody else. Now, granted, the shame is that so many people in the church today, they just feel like, well, this is an un unintelligible book. This is a closed book. That This book is so complex and so complicated that nobody can understand it. Therefore, they throw it behind your back like it's completely worthless. And you have to look at that and you say, you know what? To me, that's just borderline blasphemy to have that kind of approach when you look at everything that God has gone through to give us this book. All right, this book is an extremely precious book. It really is. So it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Now, don't let that go over our heads either, because what is grace? It is. It's undeserved favor. That's what grace is. And I think uh, we could use a lot of that in our life, too, all right, because we all are in need of grace. In other words, God's undeserved favor. But it also, you know, he says peace, all right? Now, that's something that could be very, very misunderstood, the word peace, all right? Uh, because the world is clamoring for peace. The world's, uh, you know, yelling for peace all the time. And, and I guess the world's idea of peace is just an absence of conflict, all right? An absence of war. But Jesus Christ, he told his apostles, look, my peace I give unto you, my peace I leave unto you. And Paul says this, that the peace of God is something that surpasses all understanding. We could go, be going through some of the most difficult trials in our life. And if we are right with God, if we are right with Jesus Christ, we can have an inner peace. Regardless of the, if the world's coming down around us, we can still have a peace, right, that the world doesn't have. Paul says it surpasses all understanding, all right? Now, but here's the thing. The world wants peace. The world's crying for peace, but it wants nothing to do with the Prince of Peace. And that's one of Jesus Christ's titles that we read about in the ninth chapter of Isaiah. And I think I've mentioned this before. One of the most ridiculous, asinine bumper stickers that I've ever read was I was jogging one day, I went by this truck, and it had a bumper sticker on it. It says, peace begins with a fork, go vegetarian. <laughs> I just thought that is the most asinine thing I've ever read in my life. 
You know, in other words, meaning that, hey, man, don't be eating animals because uh, peace begins with them. No, peace begins and ends with Jesus Christ. But there's not going to be any peace in this world. There's not going to be any peace in our marriages. There's not going to be any peace in the church. There's not going to be any peace anywhere, right, uh, if we're at war with God, if we do not uh, put the Prince of Peace where he belongs. So it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that says a lot. Because what is that saying? To him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, what does that mean? In one word, what does it boil down to? Good. Everlasting. Eternal. This states an eternal being, right? Just read it. To him who is, present tense, and who was, past tense, and who is to come, present tense, all right? All of time is uh, wrapped up in him. He's the beginning in the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, all right? The first and the last. I mean, there's nothing come before him. Nothing's coming after him. All right? It says a lot, but it can go right over our heads. He says, from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, the seven spirits, they're actually, the seven spirits of God, they're listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Anybody remember what the seven spirits of God are? Angels? No. Spirit of the Lord. Yeah. Right, exactly. The Spirit of the Lord, which is the Holy Spirit. And you've got the Spirit of Wisdom, the Spirit of Knowledge, the Spirit of Understanding, the Spirit of Counsel, the Spirit of Strength, the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord. These are the seven spirits of God, right? That's what the seven spirits of God are. From the seven spirits that are before his throne, and in verse 5 it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That just says a mouthful, that verse 5. You could write volumes on it. You really could. Because it says, From Jesus Christ, all right, the faithful witness. Now, what does it mean to be a faithful witness? Right. Keep this in mind, okay? If Jesus Christ was not a faithful witness, the chances are he would never would have been crucified. And what I mean by that is this, all right? It really takes a lot to be a faithful witness to God today. It just flat out does. And I'll give you an example, even though people just hate me for it, but I'm telling you right now, if you stand up and say, you know what God said on the issue of homosexuality? He said it's a sin that we need to repent of. And if we do not repent of this sin and we continue to practice this sin, we're never going to see heaven. Now, guess what I've just done? I'm being a faithful witness, aren't I? But now I'm going to incur the wrath of so many people, aren't I? I just am because I am so politically incorrect on this issue. And like I said, I don't give a who if people are gay or they're homosexual or they're transsexual or whatever. I don't care. Go ahead, do what you want, if it feels good, do it. But that's not God's message. So if I'm going to be a faithful messenger, I'm telling you faithfully what God has said. That makes me a faithful witness, right? If I come out and say, you know what? Abortion is flat out killing. It's a murder. It's genocide, all right? And in the eyes of God, this is a horrendous sin. Now, guess what I've just done? I've become a faithful witness, haven't I? Right? Now, am I going to incur the wrath of the powers that be? You better believe it. All right? Look at John the Baptist. Was he a faithful witness when he was out there in the desert by the Jordan baptizing people? And then he says it's not lawful for Herod to have his brother's wife. Now, what happened to him? Because he's a faithful witness, he gets thrown in a slammer, and he gets his head taken off. 
Now, if he wasn't a faithful witness, he would have just wink, wink, nod, nod, just not even mentioned it or just said, oh, it's okay in his circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. No, but if you're going to be a faithful witness to Christ, believe me, you are going to incur the wrath of the powers that be and the powers of darkness. Yeah. Well, a faithful witness is one who proclaims the truth and lives the truth of Christ Jesus. Well, yeah, that's what, yeah, and that's that's what Jesus, yeah. Totally. Another thing is, when you say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, people are like that. Exactly. That's being a faithful witness, isn't it? But you, once again, you just incur the wrath of people. But it says here, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, right? He's the way, the truth, he was faithful to the truth. And that's what got him killed. Make no mistake about it. That's what got him crucified, right? The firstborn of the dead. Now, what does that mean? He was the first resurrection. He was the first with a resurrected body. Okay, now you can go back to the scriptures and you can see that Elijah resurrected a kid from the from the, the dead. Elijah resurrected a kid from the dead. Go into the New Testament, you see that Jesus Christ resurrected the widow of Nain's son. He resurrected Jairus' daughter. He resurrected Lazarus. All right, and Matthew 27, it talks about how Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, uh, a lot of the tombs of righteous saints who had who had died, had opened up, and they were resurrected. But you see, they were resurrected, but they, they didn't have resurrected bodies. Therefore, they died again. And one day, they will have resurrected bodies. But when it says here, the first fruits of the dead, he's talking about, he's the first one with a resurrected body. He's the first fruits of the resurrected body. We went through Daniel. I talked about the resurrection of the righteous, which is basically four phases. It's Jesus Christ, and then it's the, the saints at the rapture, and then it's the saints after the tribulation period, and then it's the saints after the millennial period, right? That's all part of the first resurrection. But then there's a resurrection of the damned, which is two, in two phases. It's the Antichrist and the false prophet, and then it's going to be all the damned souls who ever lived, from Cain all the way up to the last person, Right? That's the resurrection of Dan. Every person born of woman is going to be resurrected from the ground if they die. All right? And so when it says here, firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, to me, that's a comforting thought. Because look at the fools that are running this world into the ground right now. I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have anyone with any common sense or any wisdom running anything. I don't care what country it is, but I look at this country and we could really see it. We are just incapable of making common sense decisions because we are at war with God. We really are. If you tell people that, most people say, well, no, we're not. But all I'm saying is this, what are we doing with all of God's moral laws? We have discarded them. We trampled them underfoot. We make a mockery of everything when it comes to Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you guys have seen this. This, this is yesterday's USA Today. Yesterday, okay? There's no less than three major articles in this paper dealing with Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This is this this is uh, yesterday's USA Today. Uh, the first article right there below the full front page, it says, Many skip holiday religious side. And it says here, Christmas surveys lack of belief. And then it talks about how Christmas uh, this year is a whole lot of jingle and not so much Jesus. And then it says this, This latest survey indicates that uh, with most call the holiday that is uh, primarily religious, their actions say otherwise. And many skip church, omit Jesus. The thing that people zero in on is the eggnog instead of Jesus Christ. This one here says, for many, Jesus isn't the reason for the season, right? Yeah. Some of the things it says in this article, it says uh, this one atheist, he basically goes, goes on to say that he never goes to church or tells about the nativity story to the little ones, but Christmas parties, sure, this atheist says. Most atheists uh, that I know celebrate in some way. They will get together for solstice or holiday parties. 
you know, that come all ye partiers instead of come all ye faithful. And then it says a lot of Americans celebrate Christmas like they practice yoga, unaware of the spiritual connection, right? And then it goes on to say also says, uh, sure, people will say that Jesus is the reason for the season. But Thor is the reason for the fifth day of the week, which is named Thursday. And people don't celebrate that, do they? You know, it says Christmas for them is just uh, something to do because you're in America these days, right? And a couple other comments. It just says this. Uh, Black Friday has become uh, the national holiday, and Christmas is the Valentine's Day with more presents. And a couple last things. It says uh, Christmas is no longer about uh, baby Jesus and the sheep. It's a solstice with friends. And then the last thing it says that about the Harry Potter movie, that uh, villain in that uh, series is Voldemort. Is that right? Voldemort. Okay. Uh, it, it says here, it, it's like Jesus Christ is the the one whose name must never be mentioned. Right? Like in the Harry Potter movie. I'm just throwing this out here because when we're reading this about Jesus Christ, in that verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, all right, he came in this world to die, but he came in as a babe. He came in as a man. He came in to save us from our sins. And you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God had promised the people that a prophet would come into the world. He would be a lot like Moses in terms of performing all kinds of miracles. But God told his people, you are to listen to this prophet. If you don't listen to this prophet, I'm going to require it of you. Because that was a result when God was speaking to the people up on Mount Sinai, when the whole mountain was shaking, it's all on fire, and people were just trembling. Even Moses was trembling because the uh, the piercing sound of the trumpet, and then when God would speak, everything would shake, and the people were terrified. And the people told Moses, hey, man, you go up that top of that mountain. You find out what God has to say, and you come down and tell us, but don't let us get close to him, but we'll die. Well, then God says, okay. Uh, I've heard these people, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to send them a prophet. He sent them his, his son in the form of a little babe, all right? Help us, you little human being, to save us, right? Uh-huh. But that, do we honor him? No. I just read three major articles in yesterday's USA Today of how Jesus Christ has been totally dismissed, right? But when you read this, he's the firstborn of the dead. It talks about why he even came into this world. It says, that, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, that everyone's going to have to count to him. This guy we got in the White House right now, he may think he's the most powerful man on earth. I got news for him. He's going to have to account to this king of the rulers of the earth, all right? And he's got a lot to account for. And the latter part of that verse 5, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. Even that, you could write books upon, you could write volumes upon. You know what, I've often thought to myself, if someone were to ever ask me what I feel is the greatest mystery in a physical universe, I would not hesitate to say a drop of blood. To me, I have thought about that, I've contemplated about that, I've studied that, I've read about it. To me, it's one of the biggest mysteries you will ever contemplate in the universe. I really believe that in the physical universe. I mean, because you look at blood, I mean, it's estimated there's something like 30 trillion red blood cells in the average human body. And the interesting thing about a red blood cell is like it basically is produced in the bone marrow. And when it's first produced, it has a nucleus, okay? which carries, of course, the DNA and everything else, but then it sheds that nucleus, it squeezes it out, so that the blood cell itself almost looks like a donut shape, only it doesn't have a hole in it, it's got the indentation. All right, that's because it sheds its nucleus, all right? And then it's got these iron atom that has a positive charge to it that can collect the uh, negative charges of, the, uh, of oxygen, and then it, it just goes through the body and feeds oxygen, takes 
out of it, you know, any waste products. It feeds it hormones, it feeds it nutrients, and it does it in a nanosecond. I mean, trillions and trillions of cells circulating through our body, and the life. And we are told all the way back that, that that the life of every living creature is in the blood. All right, you just drain enough blood out of a person, he is not going to live. He's going to die. As a matter of fact, uh, this is a true story about George Washington. You know how he died? He died of a common cold. He got a cold, and the prevailing science of the day, all right, this is the science, was the bloodletting. Well, if a person's sick, it means he's got bad blood. So let's drain some blood out of him and then make him better. Now, that's the prevailing science. Now, we've got a prevailing science today that's just as stupid as asinine ignorant. I guarantee it, right? But people just tremble with the thought of a scientist, right, in a, in a white coat who knows everything. These guys some of them have made some of the most horrendous mistakes in history. I guarantee it. Right? And I'm not trying to put down scientists. I'm just simply saying, hey, man, there's good science and there's junk science. Well, back then there was junk science that believed that, you know what, if you just drain enough blood out of a person, uh, he'll get better. So they drained the blood out of uh, George Washington, and he got worse. And they drained some more blood, and he got worse. And then they drained some more blood, and then it became out pretty coagulated coming out of him. He just died. But he had a Bible sitting right next to his nightstand where it says the life of every creature is in the blood. I mean, blood to me is a total complete mystery. It really is. And you would think to yourself, well, if the nucleus is shed from a, a red blood cell, then how is the DNA even found in blood? And it's got to come from the blood plasma or, or the, uh, the hormones in the blood itself or the white, maybe white blood cells or the platelets or whatever. But it's a mystery. I don't care. You could study that from now till hell freezes over, and I guarantee you, you're not going to be able to fully comprehend a drop of blood. It is truly a mystery. But now, complicate the whole thing and say, you know what? It, it says in Hebrews that it's only through the shedding of blood that we can be forgiven of our sins. And read it right here. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. You know what it says in Numbers? It says in Numbers chapter 36, it says this, You shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no appeasement or atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. In other words, God is saying this, blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for shed blood, except for the one who sheds the blood. No atonement can be made. And God said, basically, it has to be atoned by the one who sheds the blood. Now, here's my point. All right, remember we're going through the book of Daniel and we read about Daniel's 70 weeks and the angel says this, 70 weeks have been granted decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision of prophecy and anoint the most holy place. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we can find forgiveness. All right? In other words, even murderers can find forgiveness if they go to Jesus Christ and get under his atoning blood. But now, if we do not accept the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, atonement must be made, all right? In other words, God's saying this, blood pollutes the land, and atonement must be made for that. So, just throw out abortion. We have murdered almost 52 million people in this, in this country. Now, if you've had an abortion... You can be forgiven if you're under the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. But if you're not under the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, atonement must be made. And I got news for people, even though they don't want to hear this. The 52 million plus babies' blood has been shed. Uh, atonement's going to be made because people are going to die by the millions all right, in this country. They really are as a judgment from God because they're not under that atoning blood. So don't let this go over your head. 
uh, when it says to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And that's another thing. For him who loves us. I mean, it's easy to say, well, Jesus loved me, this I know, because the Bible says so, blah, blah, blah. And that's easy to go in one ear and out the other, isn't it? I mean, it's a tough thing when you're going through a lot of difficulties and a lot of struggles and a lot of trials and a lot of setbacks and a lot of heartbreaks and disillusionments and loneliness and despair to feel like, well, God loves me. All right? You have to take it on faith. But then, again, it says this, who released us from our sins by his blood. In other words, if somebody dies for another person, Jesus Christ said, no greater love that any man have than to lay his life down for another. Right? That's the greatest act of love. Right? Just imagine to yourself if you had a wife, a kid, a friend, or whatever, and they were drowning. And you jumped in the water to save them, and you saved them. But in the process of saving them, you drowned. And then, let's just say that the person you saved somewhere down the line, was always asking himself, I wonder if that person really loved me. I wonder if that person really loved me. Well, if you were conscious and able to respond to that question, what do you think you would say? I gave my life. Yeah, what more could I have done for you? All right? So sometimes when we're feeling down and out and the devil's really doing a number on us, sometimes we've got to say, you know what? <laughs> no greater love does any man have than to lay down his life for his friends. So sometimes our circumstances may dictate to us that God doesn't care, he's not involved, doesn't have a plan, that he doesn't love you, but he's saying here, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins and by his blood. That verse 5, almost every verse you could write volumes on. You really could if you break it down. That verse 6, it says, And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, he's speaking to Christians here. And why has he made us? To be a kingdom of priests. I have asked this many times over the years. What is a priest? Well, it's one who represents God to man and man to God, right? That's what a priest is. Right? And you know what Peter says? He says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is a choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, we're all made to be priests. In other words, we're, we're not all ordained priests, all right? Don't misunderstand me. But as priests, we are to represent God to man and man to God. That's what our duty, our function is. I had my brother-in-law call me just yesterday, and he's almost in tears because he's so happy because a friend of his back there, he was able to lead to Jesus Christ. It's the first person he ever led to the Lord, and he was just really excited about that, right? First person he's ever led to Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I gave him a few verses to look up in terms of how people who lead others to God and people who lead a sinner from the error of his way, you know, will shine brightly like the expanse of heaven. All right, this is what we're supposed to do as priests, all right? And I've mentioned this statistic before, but it's pretty appalling that uh, it's estimated that 95% of all church members never lead another soul to Christ. And if that's even close to being true, then it's pretty uh, pathetic, isn't it? That uh, God wants us to be priests. As a matter of fact, you go all the way back to Exodus, and you know what God said? He wanted all of his people to be priests. That was basically his original intention. But then he determined that one tribe was going to be the priestly tribe. Why? Anybody remember? Well, God's original intention was all his people were to be priests, but then what happened was that when they had that golden calf that Aaron uh, fashioned, remember, and then everybody started uh, getting out of control, or most people started getting out of control. When Moses came down from that mountain, he was absolutely livid. He threw those Ten Commandments down at that golden calf feet, and, you know, he was just absolutely so mad. He just ground that calf into powder, and he threw it into the Kidron stream, and he told people, get down there and drink that slop. He was just absolutely 
outraged at this people's idolatry. All right, but what he told the Levites, he says, first of all, he said this: "Who's with me?" And then the tribe of the Levi went with him, and he says, "Go to the camp and kill everybody that's involved in this." And, they, and the Levites even killed members of their own family who were involved in that idolatry. So God determined, you know what I'm going to do? Because Levi didn't spare even his own family because of this, I'm going to make them the priestly tribe. All right? So that was God's original intention. Well, his intention has never faded because you read it right here. What is God's intention to make his priest? And here's the thing. You can ask people, why did God make you? All right? First of all, a lot of people today who don't even believe God made them. They just believe they evolved from some butthole. Right? But God made us to know him, love him, serve him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have told that clearly in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus Christ quoted. When somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted that out of Deuteronomy. You know, to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the two greatest commandments. All right? To love God with a whole heart. In other words, God doesn't accept half measures. He's not satisfied with being lukewarm, apathetic, indifferent, ho-hum when it comes to God. He's made us to serve him with all of our heart, right? And that's what he's saying here, to make us a priesthood at verse 6, and he made us to be a kingdom, a priest to his God and his Father. And I guarantee you, people, as a shallow thinker, the ignoramus is going to read this and say, well, that's pretty shallow of God to force people, I mean, to make us to serve him I mean, uh, that's pretty self-centered, don't you think, God? And, you know, people like that just don't see the big picture. But you know what? It's only in serving God with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength that we find fulfillment, complete fulfillment, joy, peace, happiness, that we have come in line with the very purpose of what we're made for, all right? And uh, you want to be unhappy? Then don't serve God. You want to be happy? Serve God with all your heart. Right? He says, uh, and he made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. Right? Not to these politicians, not to these lawyers, not to the ACLU, not to all these kings and the princesses and the emperors, and not to all of these people in Hollywood, not to all these celebrities and the sports figures. Look at this here. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And what does amen mean? So be it. It's a solemn ratification, man. So be it. It's going to happen, right? I mean, the most foolish, ignorant, stupid thing that anybody could do in their life is to reject Jesus Christ, all right? Because the Bible says clearly that even people in hell are someday going to bend their knee and confess to with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it's going to be too late for them, right? And then verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it will be. Amen. In other words, this book, let's face it, this book is going to embark upon an odyssey of just incredible suffering and pain and death and dying and tribulation and distress that you will not believe. You just will not believe it, what we're going to go through in this book. But here's the thing. It's almost as though God is telling us right up front what's going to happen in the end. You look at that, it's pretty uniquely written to me. Look at that verse 7. All right, behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's almost like taking a book and reading the last chapter. Nobody does that. Why? Spoils it, right? But God is basically telling us, you know what? We're about to embark upon some pretty difficult times. All right. As a matter of fact, we were just reading in Daniel about a time of distress that the world has never seen before. Remember last week we were reading in Daniel, last chapter, where it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will rise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. In other words, a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, here's a question. I want to see who's thinking, all right, and who's sleeping. 
I'm going to read this again. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, throw this out here. If you read the account of the Noatian flood, the entire world was destroyed. The entire world was utterly and completely destroyed, devastated, right? And only how many people survived? Eight. All right? Now, when this time of distress rises, there will probably be a few hundred thousand, maybe a few million that survive. So when I read this, and that there will be a time of distress that has never occurred since there was a nation until that time, what's the key phrase here to show us that the Noatian flood was actually a greater time of distress? There's coming a time of distress that what? That never occurred since when? It was a nation. They became a nation. Well, put it this way. It's a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation. When did the world experience nations? It was after the flood. It was after the flood, and you remember you go all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and you've got this guy named Nimrod who wants everybody with speaking one language to build this huge platform, all right, so they could calculate the movement of the stars and have control over everybody with one language. But then God judged the world again by confounding men's languages. Now, when God confounded the languages, now there's a nation. You see, I'm just saying, what's interesting to me is that this is not a contradiction when you say this, saying a time of distress that has never occurred, and you say, well, wait a minute, the, the Noatian flood was the worst time of distress, but wait a minute, read the rest of the sentence. It says that since there was a nation, right? Right? And then you go back over here, we are told that basically the end of this chapter, of course it's not the end of the book, but basically we were told the last chapter in terms of Jesus Christ coming back. He says here, he behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. All right? We are told that clearly. Yeah? I just want to say, like, even though in the Norwegian flood, like, only eight people survived, the, the greater distress could also be the way people are going to die. There's going to be a lot more suffering, I think. Good point. And, yeah, drowning is terrible, but... I think we're going to be alive and suffering for before. Well, people who aren't prepared. Yeah. Right, very good point because this time of distress is going to last seven years, all right, where hundreds of millions and billions of people are going to lose their lives, all right. But what would you rather do, suffer seven years or uh, 40 days? <laughs> you know, I mean, what a, you, obviously the people during the Ocean Flood didn't even suffer 40 days. I mean, they were gone the first week. You know, you better believe it. The, the last survivors were wiped out. Right, and my point is this: that was a good point that she made in terms of it's going to be more prolonged. But we are told right up front that Jesus Christ is coming in the clouds, and look what it says here: every eye will see him, even those whom he has pierced. Now, who's that referring to? What's that? No, no, the Jews, the Jews. As a matter of fact, when we went through the book of Zechariah, this is what it says in the book of Zechariah. It says that in that day I was set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now listen to this: I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, who's thinking? It says this, in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's Jesus Christ when he returns, right, in the battle of Armageddon. And I will pour out on the house of David. Now, what's the house of David? The Jews. Jews. All right, this is not anti-Semitic, and only the shallow thinker would try to pull out that race car because it has nothing to do with race. It says God himself said this, it's the house of David that have pierced me. All right. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. 
right? Now look back over here in Revelations, and it says here, and it says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, the Jews, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, meaning everyone will see him, all right? And then everyone, they're going to really be overwhelmed when they see Jesus Christ coming, all right? The wicked are just going to try to hide from him. The righteous are going to have tears of joy streaming down their faces, you know, saying, Oh, we'll give all the praise of God, here he comes. And then it says, So be it, amen. In other words, hey man, this is going to happen. doesn't matter whether we believe it or not, you believe it or not, I believe it or not, anybody else that denies it, they scoff at it, they, they trample it underfoot. And you know what? It says here, so be it, amen. All right? You want to toss this over your shoulder and just foo-foo, right? that's up to you. But I'm telling you, it's going to happen, and you're going to be part of it. One way or the other, either in heaven, in hell, on earth. And it says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Now, this is who's speaking here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's Jesus Christ who's speaking, right? The Alpha and Omega, that's the Greek alphabet, meaning the A to the Z, the beginning to the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. And, you know, people say, well, that's not Jesus Christ. That's just uh, God the Father. Right? That's what people will argue, especially if you're dealing with the Jehovah Witnesses or whoever. But, you know, if you go back to Isaiah chapter, chapter 44, verse 6, it says this, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Now, Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him account it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. I Have have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. In other words, he's saying, I am the first and the last. And then people say, well, it's not really God the Father. But just jump over to this chapter 2. Look at verse 8. You know, this is Jesus addressing the churches. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write the first and the last who was dead. Now, when did God the Father die? He didn't. This is Jesus Christ saying, I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who was dead, the first and the last, who was dead and who has come to life and says this. And as a matter of fact, if you jump over there into uh, uh, Revelations uh, chapter 21, he says the same thing. Chapter 21, uh, verses uh, 5 through 6, he says this. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he says, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All right, so this is Jesus Christ speaking here. He's the first and last, the beginning and the end. I know if I go around and around with Jehovah's Witnesses, just try to show them this. You know, Jesus Christ is God. I was in the Kinko's a couple of weeks ago just running off some scripture verses, and the, the lady seen that I had my Bible there. And she kept showing an interest in what I was doing, and then she says, oh, that's a Bible. She says, uh, and then she hands me this little track, okay? I knew immediately it was a Watchtower track because you see it right away. And, she, and, you know, and I said, well, you Jehovah's Witness, right? And she says, yeah, and I says, well, you know what? The biggest uh, difference I have with you people is uh, I believe Jesus Christ is God. There ain't nothing going to change that. So that was the end of that conversation. But that's that's what it boils down to. These people do believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel. I guarantee you he is not Michael the Archangel. Jesus Christ is God eternal. All right? I've gone round and round with the old witnesses, and they say, well, Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel. I said, well, where do you get that? Then they take me over there to Corinthians where it talks about Jesus Christ coming back in the clouds and it says, and the trumpet of God and the voice of an archangel. And it says, here, see? I said, that's how you get that? Man, that's really, really stretching things, right? And all I'm saying is this, you know, I'm not trying to pick on any of anybody. I'm just simply saying, hey man, look what it's saying here about 
the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning again, the first and the last. Now he says this in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now he's saying, I, John, your brother. All right, This is addressed to Christians and fellow partakers in the tribulation. In tribulation. What does that suggest to you? You know, Peter says in First Peter chapter 4, he said this, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you which come upon you for your testing as though some strange things were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You know, there's a whole uh, segment of Christianity today that's involved in the health, wealth, and prosperity. And they just say, you know what, if you just have enough faith and you just send us enough money, all right, God wants you to be healthy, he wants you to be wealthy, he wants you to be prosperous, he wants you to be this, that, and the other thing. And I think that's one of the biggest crock of maneuvers that come across uh, out of the bowels of hell. It really is because, you know what, uh, there's so much tribulation that goes on in the church today. That's what John is writing about right here, you know. Are these people going to preach to John when he's out there on the island of Patmos dying of exposure and overwork and everything else? Hey, uh, you know, John, you just don't have enough faith, man. Otherwise, you'd be swimming in money, you know. Well, he's saying here, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. And that says a lot, all right, in the kingdom, all right. In other words, the right kingdom, God's kingdom. And it's a kingdom of righteousness, all right. And the perseverance, what does that mean? Because that word is very important. Uh, yeah, you got to persevere to the end. And Jesus Christ says it's those who, who persevere to the end will be saved, all right? And let's face it, man, if you're living for Christ, it's not an easy thing, man. You're going to have all kinds of problems, and especially the powers of darkness are going to come against you like you won't believe if you're if you're trying to serve Christ, all right? got to persevere, but it's only through the grace of God that any of us could persevere. I mean, I would have given up the first five minutes, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God working through my life. But also the same thing. If we're going to persevere, what's going to be required of us? And you know what? I just just throw this out there. You know what's going to really require of us? Discipline. Discipline, 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 man. I was in the Marine Corps, man. So they drilled in your head, man. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Get your lazy behind out of bed. Don't be sleeping until noon. And get involved with God at a daily basis. In your quiet time, you're reading His Word. You're reading extra biblical literature. You're doing good works. In other words, that takes discipline. It takes a determination. Say, you know what? I'm going to turn off that TV and spend time with God. That's how, that's what's going to enable us to persevere. All right, and it's the only thing. It's just a, an exercise of discipline in our life. We're not going to be carried to heaven on flowery bits of ease. You know, it's just not going to happen. We've got to persevere. He says, and persevere, which are in Christ, which are in Jesus, right? It's in him we're going to be able to have the good grace to persevere. But we've got to seek him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what it means. The kingdom of perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, he's exiled to that island. Why? Because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, all right? And he's not out there because he was a murderer, a rapist, a thief, a no-good thug. No, he's out there because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, because he was a faithful witness. And I got news for people, man. It's going to boil down to this, where if we're going to be true witnesses and faithful witnesses of Jesus, that state is going to come down on us like a ton of bricks. It just is. And verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of the trumpet. Now, here's the thing. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is the first day of the week because that's when the Christians started celebrating or basically getting together was the first day of the week. Because just keep this in mind. The seventh day of the week was the Sabbath day, and that's when you know the Jews would get together. Well, the Jews didn't want anything to do with Christians. 
All right, and the early Christians found themselves ostracized from the from the synagogues, right? So they were forced to choose a different day to gather together. So they chose the day that Christ rose from the dead, the first day of the week. So it's on Sunday. He's over there on his island, and he's in the spirit. That says a lot to me. What does it mean to be in the spirit? Well, Jesus Christ, remember the woman in the well? He told that woman, he said, man, there's coming a day when God looks for those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. All right? It doesn't matter the building or the day. Worship God in spirit and in truth. But we've got to do it in truth. All right? We can't be worshiping God, a, a false God. We can't be uh, uh, have all these heretical doctrines and beliefs and think that we're worshiping in truth. No, God looks for those who will worship him in spirit. In other words, he doesn't look for people who just give him lip service, just mouthing a bunch of nothing when they go to church because even Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So to worship God in spirit means, hey, your heart is connected with God, Right? And uh, he's, that's what he's doing. And then what has happened? He's out there. He's out in the spirit. You know, he, he could have been in a very depressed mood right now, don't you think? Yeah. But he's in the spirit, right? He's praising God, looking at God. He's on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus, the word of God. He held fast to it, right? He didn't water it down, right? In verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, all right? A trumpet is loud, it's clear, it's piercing, right? Get a trumpet blown into your ear. Believe me, it's going to wake you up, right? And uh, he got woken up in a real hurry. Verse 11, saying, write in a book what you see. Now, here's the thing. That's why I say, this is not hearsay. He's told twice in this chapter to write it down. Write in a book what you see, right? And send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pogramum, and to Thyatira, and Sardis, and to the Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, this is who he's going to address, these seven churches of Asia. But interesting to me, there was a lot of churches during this time that John was on the island of Patmos. I mean, there was a church of Corinth, and Rome, and of Colossae, of Jerusalem, of Galatia, of Thessalonica, of Berea, Antioch, Philippi, Caesarea. They were just all over the place. But he picks these seven churches of Asia. And if you look at the map here, here they are, right here. All right, I, I just kind of drew this little thing here to show that it starts with Ephesus, Smyrna, Pogramum, Tyrathyrus, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and who's in the midst? Jesus Christ. He says, where two or more gather in my name, I am in the midst of you, right? Right now, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is in our midst. And it's not because of me, it's not because of you, but he promised, just gather two or three in my name, I will be in your midst. All right. When Jesus Christ was about to go to heaven, he said it would be really advantageous for him to leave and send the paraclete, send the comforter, because now if Jesus Christ was still on earth, he would be very limited geographically, right, in his physical body. But now he's at the right hand of his father. He has sent his spirit so that he could be everywhere at one time. All right. His presence is right here in the Holy Spirit. He's right in our midst. I'm absolutely, totally convinced of it. I bet my life on it. He's in our midst. Right? So he said, write to these churches. Now, here's the thing about these churches. These churches were in existence during the time of John. They're in existence to this day. Now, I think people have made a tremendous mistake saying that, well, no, these churches uh, were basically characteristics of of, uh, churches throughout the ages. For example, there's a belief that says that, well, the church of Ephesus, they say that was the apostolic church that was around 100 A.D. And the church of Smyrna, that was a persecuted church that was around 100 A.D. to 300 A.D. And then the church of Bogramos, 
That was the imperial church. That was from 313 A.D. to 590 A.D. And then there was the Church of Tyre That was the papacy, you know, the pope and everything else. That was from 590 to 1517 B.C. And then the Church of Sardis, which was this Reformation church under Luther and the rest of them. That was from 1517 to 1730. And then the Church of Philadelphia. That was the missionary church. That was from 1730 to 1900. And the Church of Laodicea. That's the age of apostasy beginning in the 1900s. I don't believe that for one split second. It's just it's completely wrong. Completely. You know, there's no doubt in my mind it's totally wrong because these churches were in existence during the time of John. All right? But these churches were characteristics of the church all throughout the church ages. All right? You will have the persecuted church. You will have the loving church. You will have the uh, evangelical church. You will have the lukewarm apathetic churches. This is what we've seen from the very first century all the way down to today. Right? So that's what he's talking about. Write in a book when you see and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Bagramum, Tyrathyra, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, this is very, very instructive because it says, I turned to see, and a voice was speaking to me, and I, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, I don't have time to get into the lampstands. I wish I did, but I just don't have time. But you go back to Exodus where God gave the specific commands to build this lampstand. This lampstand was to be made out of a talent of gold. All right? Now, that's the largest weight in the Hebrew measures of weights, all right? A talent of gold. It's been estimated it can weigh anywhere from 75 pounds to 130 pounds. I mean, uh, what's gold going for right now? It's going for around $1,200 an ounce. So if you talk about a talent of gold, I mean, we're talking about over $26 million worth as far as this lampstand is concerned. And God gave the very specific instruction as far as this lampstand. It was to have a, a base, a stem, and then these branches coming out. And then around the, the base, or basically where the candle wick would go, it would be designed with almond leaves and with, with flowers. The almonds speak of what? Well, what's the first tree to blossom in the spring is the almond tree. We see it with all that white uh, you know, foliage on it, right? It speaks of resurrection. Flowers speak of what? Jesus Christ said, uh, I tell you right now, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these in terms of the lilies of the field, right? right. So flowers speak of glory. Almonds speak of resurrection. The oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. This lamp here it points to the light of the world. The fact that we were not given any dimensions for this lamp, all right, back there in Exodus. They gave the dimensions of the ark, the dimensions of the altar of incense, the dimensions of the sacrificial altar. All these dimensions were given, but there's no dimensions given for the lamp. So what does that suggest to us? Well, put it this way. Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world, all right? His light knows no bounds. But also he told us very clearly that we are the light of the world. All right. So as churches, as the seven churches of Asia, we have this light that we are to shine forth. He says very clearly, Christ said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what he's seeing. These seven lampstands, these are the seven churches. I don't, I don't, I'm not guessing here. Jesus Christ said what these mysteries are. The seven churches and the seven churches of Asia. And now he says this. He says uh, in verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstands. Now, Jesus Christ is in the midst of the lampstands, right? right? He's in our midst. He's in the midst of these churches. You can see him right here. It almost goes in a circle. Right. You see the same thing here. He's in the midst. He's in the midst. He's always in the midst of his church, of his people, right? I turned to see, and a voice was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Now, that's interesting to me. 
one like a son of man. In the Gospels, uh, Jesus referred to himself as a son of man no less than 80 times. It was his favorite title. What does it mean, son of man? Why did he choose that title for himself? Son of man is Jesus, the physical man. Yes, he identified himself with humanity. Now, go back to Ezekiel. God refers to Ezekiel as the son of man. But here's the thing. To be a son of man, to be a daughter of Eve, a uh, son of Adam. In other words, Jesus Christ loved that title because he, he identified totally and completely with man, with mankind, with humanity in every way except our sinful nature, right? That's why he referred to himself as the son of man. Now, this is the, virtually the only place in, in the book of Revelation that he's referred to as the son of man, except later on he's mentioned one more time, okay, uh, when he comes to reap as far as judgment, as far as the Son of Man. But uh, this says a lot, because it says here, I saw one like a Son of Man. Now, he didn't say, I saw the Son of Man. He says, I saw one like the Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus Christ's resurrected state. He's going to describe him in physical terms. But interesting thing, there's absolutely no physical description of Jesus Christ in the Gospels except what? What's the only physical description that we have of Jesus Christ in the Gospels? That's in Isaiah chapter 53. But in Luke it says, And Jesus grew both tall and wise and was loved by both God and man. In other words, the only physical description that we have of Jesus Christ in the gospel is that he was tall. Right? right? But you go back to Isaiah chapter 53, it says that his appearance was such that he had no stately majesty that people would be attracted to him at all. He was very, very ordinary. And the only physical description that we have of Jesus Christ is that he was tall. And I think the Holy Spirit went out of its way not to give us any physical descriptions of Jesus Christ. He didn't say, well, he had brown hair, he had blue eyes, he had light skin, he had brown skin, he had black hair. He had, you know, and no description. I mean, if you were robbed by somebody, a cop says to you, hey, man, uh, well, can you describe the person? What are some of the characteristics that we, you're going to give the cop? The color of skin. The color of skin. The color of his eyes, color of his hair, his height, his weight, all these things are very important to describe a person, but God has never described Jesus Christ in physical terms. Now he's going to be described in physical terms. But why do you think the Holy Spirit went out of his way not to describe Jesus Christ in physical terms when he was on earth? Because he represents all that. Good, good, exactly. He's the representative man, you know. Minority groups can't say, well, you know, he's not black, so he is not my God. That's a white man's God. That's the biggest bunch of hooey you ever want to hear because Jesus Christ is not described in physical terms, all right? His physical terms. And God has done that specifically because people love to play the stinking race card. But the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, that God shows no partiality whatsoever. He does not see the pigmentations of anybody's skin. He looks right through us, gazes right into our soul, and wants to know what that looks like. Right? That's what he's interested in. Not the color of our skin, the hair, color of our hair, the color of our eyes, you know, how much we weigh, how tall, how short. You know, that has nothing to do with anything as far as God is concerned. Right? So here it talks about one like a son of man. But there's no man like him because now he's going to describe him in physical terms. It says here, and in the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet. Now he's clothed with a robe, reaching to his feet. What does this robe symbolize? Right, good. We are told in Isaiah, he says, our righteousness is what? It's nothing but filthy rags. That's our righteousness before God. We have to put on Christ's righteousness if we're going to be right before God. But also, his clothes are rolled from his neck to his feet, which would suggest also he is not ever going to be completely known. You go back to the Bible, 
the concept of sexual union between a husband and a wife was always referred to as knowing one another, right? Well, God cannot be fully known, right? If he were to be able to be fully known, he wouldn't be God. I guarantee it, right? I've gone round and round, for example, with people, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and others who denied the Trinity. And they say, well, there's no such word in the scriptures. And that doesn't make any sense. And uh, you, you don't understand it. And I'm thinking, well, what are you, smoke a dope? Don't you understand? That if you could fully comprehend God, he wouldn't be God. The Trinity is a mystery, you know. But that doesn't mean it's not true. You know, Christ is not only fully righteous, but he cannot be fully known either. All right? So he's describing him in these terms. He's like uh, like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Okay? When I first drew this picture, you can see the mistake I made here. I put this sash or this girdle around his waist. And I read it again and said, well, that's not what it's saying. I said, that's unusual to have it up here. But then I got to thinking, well, no, it's obvious why it's up here, because this is gold. What does gold point to, symbolize? Not, huh? Deity, the Godhead, all right, divine, divinity. In other words, he's got this golden sash or girdle, and a girdle is not meant to bring in flab here. This girdle is for what? This girdle is, he's girded for action, but he's girded across his heart, showing that, you know what? He's about to tread the world in judgment, incredible judgment. The world is going to experience distress that you won't believe. People are going to die by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions, by the billions. And yet he is not going to be moved by passion or pity. That's why it's around his heart that he's going forth to judge this world because of man's wickedness. All right, And all the tears and the sobbing and the, and the suffering and dying are not going to move him. Okay, because why? Because he's righteous and where there is unrepentant sin, he will judge it. And he's going forth in judgment, right? That's what he's doing. That's why his emotions are divinely constrained, right? That's, what's ha- that's what that says. That's very powerful to me, what it's describing there. You know, and then in verse 14, and his head and, and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. That says a lot. His hair, like white snow, like wool. What does hair represent in Scripture? It actually represents our strength, all right? It really does. Go back to Samson, all right? Every physical attribute of our body has a spiritual significance to it. That's why people who are really totally committed out to God, like the Nazarenes and whatnot, they weren't to cut their hair, all right? In a sense that they're showing that their spiritual strength shows their spiritual strength, but it's all white. It's the white as snow. What does that suggest? What does that point to? Yeah, purity, holiness. Also, we are told in Leviticus, God said this. He says, if a hoary-haired man, a gray-haired man would go walking by a bunch of young people, those young people had to stand up in respect for this man because of his age. All right? And we are told in Proverbs that the glory of an old man is gray hair. Why? Because of uh, his, his experiences and his wisdom and his knowledge and his insight. All right? So this white hair is pointing to the fact, you know what? There's not one impure thought. There's not one uncharitable thought. There's not one unwholesome thought, all right? There's not any self-seeking here. This is what this white hair points to, all right? It's his strength, and it's rooted in purity and righteousness and godliness, right? That's what it's pointing to. And it says his eyes were a flame of fire. What does that suggest? All right? Fire can penetrate through anything if it's hot enough, anything. 
All right? It really can. And his eyes are a flame of fire, also showing that, yeah, he's coming in judgment, but also that he can see through the heart of a matter. All right? He can detect everything. Like we're told in Jeremiah, the heart's deceitful above all things, that desperately wicked, that nobody can know the hidden motives of the heart but God himself. He can look right through our hearts and see a person's motives. Right now, he can look through me. And I'll tell you right now, none of us have ever seen a, seen a motive. We can discern a motive, maybe, but we've never, ever seen one. But he can see it, all right? He can see right through my heart and know, you know what? This John, hey, he's just doing this out of, uh, you know, self-seeking, you know, or is he doing that out of total love for me? I mean, he can look through our hearts. He can see our motives, our thoughts, our intentions. I've said many times over the years, I would rather do the wrong thing with the right motive or intention than to do the right thing with the wrong motive or intention because God is basically going to judge us on our intentions, right? So this is what he can see through everything, all right? He can see our thoughts and our motives, everything. And also it says here, his feet were like burnished bronze. Now what's burnished mean? Anybody's Bible say polished? Huh? Okay, it's bronze. What does bronze point to? Huh? Judgment. Okay, he's, he's about to tread the world of judgment, but it's burnished bronze, suggesting this, it's polished bronze. So in other words, all of God's judgments are weighed out, measured out, they're even, they're not uneven. God just doesn't get up one morning and say, oh, I'm in a bad mood, I'm going to knock some heads together and fly off in a rage or a fit, right? You know, all of his judgments are going to be meted out, all right? Uh, that's what that's pointing to. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, Right? And his voice is like the sound of many waters. When he speaks, you stand next to the Niagara Falls, that's something like 200 million cubic feet of water going over falls every second. And it's like you could not hear yourself think, all right, standing next to that. Now, read this here. His voice was like the voice of the sounds of many waters. You know what? We've got a, a whole world full of people today who are always screaming and shouting and trying to talk over one another, especially if you're trying to tell them what God has said on an issue. They'll be in your face and screaming and yelling and protesting, right? Well, i tell you what. When God speaks, man, <laughs> you hit an old commercial. When E.F. Hutton speaks, yeah, right. hey, people listen. Remember that old commercial, right? Well, I'll tell you right now. Imagine to yourself like the New York Stock Exchange where you see all these guys that everybody's yelling and screaming. You ever see pictures of that? And you wonder, how does anybody understand each other in that mess, right? Because everybody's screaming and yelling. It's all about money, right? And greed and everything. I'll tell you what, when Jesus Christ speaks, it's going to be total silence, and nobody's going to try to speak over him. Nobody's going to be saying a word, because, man, I'll tell you right, it'll strike fear in the hearts of the bravest of men when he speaks. All right, sometimes you wonder, why does God just stand up and speak? And maybe, maybe I don't want him to do that, right? I mean, it would just really strike fear in you, because it says here, was a voice like many waters. And verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. In his right hand he held seven stars. Now, I read earlier, what are the seven stars? Jump down at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lamps, and the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches. Now, here's the thing. I think angels are mentioned something like 67 times in this book of Revelation, right? But these aren't literal angels, right? If he's holding in his hand, there's seven stars or seven angels. What's another title description of angels? Huh? Good. Priests, ministers, pastors, messengers. In other words, 
These are to the seven leaders of these seven churches, to the seven pastors, right? He refers to them as angels because they are messengers. They are his messengers. They are his pastors in this church. Now, granted, too, there could easily have been, there probably was, seven angels over these seven churches, all right? But he's addressing this letter to the pastors of these seven churches because he can't send them to angels, literal angels. Right. Just we, we just got to put two and two together. The angels are ministering spirits. They're messengers from God. These pastors are God's messengers, right? So send this book to these seven pastors. But he holds them in his right hand suggesting what? Well, he's holding these churches in his hand showing that they belong to him and that he is in total control, Right? And that they are answerable to him, right? These seven churches, right? And that uh, nobody can take them out of a hand, right? This is him holding these seven stars. And it says here, in his right hand he has held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What is that sharp sword? We are told clearly in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and the spirit, both the joints and the marrow, and are able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is the word of God. Remember when Jesus Christ comes back in Revelation chapter 19? Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And what did he going to smite the nations? That's his word. That's his word. That's what we got right now is God's word right now. We're reading God's word. This is a sword, mm-hmm. all right? It was one of Napoleon's generals who once said, you can do everything with a sword, but sit on it, right? And I think a lot of people are just sitting on their sword today. They don't know how to use this sword, all right? And this is a double-edged sword. It's a two-edged sword. It'll take your own head off, all right, if you're not careful, right. right? You know, if I'm just teaching this word and I'm not living up to it, believe me, it could take my own head off, right? This is a sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what it says here about him. Right In his right hand he held seven stars, and in his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun, shining in his strength. Right? That says a lot. Because now we're not dealing with just any man. This is the resurrected man, the son of man. Yeah? You were talking about him holding stars in his right hand. I'm thinking, well, why not his left hand? But then Jesus sets the right hand of the Father, and the sheep go off to the right, and goes off less of a place of honor or respect. Very good. Very good, very good point. And also, it's a place of power, right? The right hand of God, right? That's the place of power, place of strength. Very good point. But he also said his face is shining like the sun in its strength. Now, granted, any of us, we, we could not look at the, the sun shining in its strength. The sun is almost 900 million miles wide, uh, and even though it's 93 million miles from the earth, uh, it loses like 200 million tons of mass every second. And if we look at that sun, we could go blind. But his face is shining like the sun in his strength. I mean, that says a lot in terms of we're not going to be able to stand in the presence of God without being under the blood of Jesus Christ. These people will just think, well, I'm basically good. If there's a heaven, I'll go up there. I'll just say, well, here I am, God. Where's my reward? For what? You know what I'm saying? We need to be forgiven of our sins and under that blood because no, no, no flesh and blood is going to glory in, in God's sight, right? And this is the, the sun shining in his strength. Yeah. We keep forgetting we're a fallen world. That's another thing. You can tell people this is called the world they get on your case. Yeah, yeah, right. And then verse 17 says, And and when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. (laughs) I mean, this is what people don't get. He's in the presence of the resurrected Christ. He doesn't catch himself here. He falls down like a dead man, right? 
I mean, I remember one time years ago, I was playing racquetball, and my potassium was real low, and everything else happened to me, and I just passed out. I got up there to serve the ball, and they said that everything just went black, and they said I just fell over like a tree. Just bam, you know. Was, I didn't catch myself. I just fell over, right? And I think when I hit the floor, charred my heart. I sort of got up again. But all I'm saying is this: that this guy did not catch himself. He finds himself in the presence of God. He falls over like a dead man. I mean, you know, people think they just waltz in in the presence of God and have this familiarity that breeds contempt in front of him. It ain't going to happen. And he says, and he placed his right hand on me. Now, that's interesting, okay? Even though he's God, he's, he's in his glory, he places his right hand on John. He didn't just say to John, well, get up, man. <laughs> right? He places his right hand on him. What does that show? Compassion, Compassion, mercy, sympathy, understanding, you know, a connection with this humanness, right? Right? It says here, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. All right? Uh, in other words, he, he's reassuring him here. All right? Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. There's no appeal after me. I'm the beginning, the end, the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus Christ speaking. I'm the first and the last. Anybody who says, well, Jesus Christ is a created being, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, hey, man, what are you going to do with this verse here and the rest of them that says he's, he's the first and the last? All right? You can't get around that. In verse 18, and the living one, and I was dead. All right? He's the first and the last, but he was dead. All right? I'm the living one. The living one. In other words, in him we live, we breathe, we have our being, right? Go back to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where it says, in him is life, all right? All of life comes through him. He's the living one, and I was dead, all right? That's Jesus Christ, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and the Hades, all right? He's resurrected, never going to die again, all right? He died on our behalf, but also he has the keys of death and Hades, all right? He's the final authority, all right? What's Hades? It's hell, all right? I read that book, Dante's Inferno. It's not anything of a biblical nature, but it talks about all the seven rings of hell and whatnot. But the way he described it, he says that there's a big, huge stone wall and the gates of hell, and it's chiseled in stone. Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here, right? Well, Jesus Christ has the keys to this hell. And he says here, I have keys to death and of Hades, all right? Uh, nobody dies without his permitting it, allowing it, right? And right now, you know, if people want to take our life, we are immortal until God says it's time for you to go. In verse 20, 19, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. Now, this is the second time he says write. You see what I'm saying? Jump over to that verse 11. Write in the book what you see over here. It says, Therefore, write these things. Everything is to be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is not hearsay. He's writing these things down. All right? He's a wise witness to them. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are, right? The, the things that are, these seven churches, right? And everything that's happening around them and the things which, which will take place after these things. This is the future, right? Remember last week we were closing up the book of Daniel and I just brought in the latest uh, tabloid as far as the 100 prophecies for not just next year, but the 100 prophecies that are supposed to take place within the next two weeks, all right? Uh, weren't they a joke? They were an absolute joke. Some of these, uh, and, and I'm looking at these prophecies and I think, why are some of these prophecies so outrageous? Why do you think these so-called psychics would make such outrageous claims? Take a guess. Here's the thing. Let's just say that one person actually, in some outrageous prophecy, it came true. All right? What do you think is going to happen to this person now? 
Look at Jean Dixon. You know, she's been long dead, but she had been proven over and over and over and over and over and over again, 99.99% of the time, to be dead wrong. But she got one thing right. What was it? She predicted the assassination of, of Kennedy. And so that catapulted her into prominence as far as being this person who could give prophecy, right? Interesting thing. Look at any of these magazines. I think I gave it to you, Ben. And what do they always have when they have these prophecies, 100 prophecies, 101 prophecies? What do they always have? They either have a picture of an angel or Jesus Christ or some well-known saint, right? So to suggest what? Yeah, that this is from God. It's the biggest joke you ever want to see. But I think to myself, you know, why are some of these things just so outrageous and laughable? Well, if you throw enough mud up against a wall, some of it's going to stick somewhere, right? And I guess they figure, well, all I need is just one, and I'm going to be catapulted and famous, right? The way Gene Dixon was. But this is what he's saying here. Write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which are to take place after these things. This, this is a prophet of God. Right? He's writing them down, believe me. The dotting of every I and the crossing of every T is going to come to pass. I guarantee it. Verse 20, last verse of this chapter 1. I know we're over time. As for the mysteries of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the seven angels of the church of the seven churches. In other words, they are the seven pastors of the seven churches. Right? And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Right? The pastors and the churches that we are the light of the world. These seven churches in Christ is in our midst. Right, that's what it's talking about. I know we're over time, so I can't drag this out any more than I already have. But anybody ever want to add or share? Because this first chapter, it really sets the groundwork for what's going to take place. Now, in the next two chapters, Jesus Christ is going to address every one of these churches. You know, their faults and their and their good points and their bad points, and it's going to say a lot to us. All right, but I think that that the Holy Spirit has gone out of its way to give us a physical description of the resurrected Christ. Uh, this is the risen Christ. Now we're given his, you know, a physical description of him. And believe me, nobody can stand in his presence. Nobody. All right? They're going to fall like a dead man at, at his feet. All right? We've got to understand what we're dealing with here. That's why it's so all important that we get right with God under the blood of Jesus Christ and know exactly who Jesus Christ is because I don't believe that you can divorce salvation from sound doctrine. All right? Because when you don't have sound doctrine and don't have a clear-cut understanding of who Jesus Christ is, who we are, where we're going, I mean, I don't see how people can really be saved, right? To have an understanding, hey, man, we really need the blood of Jesus Christ. We really need to commit to him. We really need to start obeying him if we're going to see heaven, all right? And uh, you know, does anybody have anyone to add or share?